Harvard professor John Rawls conducted an experiment which is still used and examined to this day. The experiment was called the veil of ignorance. Has anybody here heard of the veil of ignorance? Okay. (laughs) The veil of ignorance. Rawls had 6,000 individuals who took this test, and he had them imagine that they sat behind a veil of ignorance, which kept them from knowing who they were and to be ignorant to their personal circumstances. So then, with that veil in place, he asked them this question. He said, what sort of society, what sort of community would you create? So upon discovering this and reading this as a a minister, my thoughts immediately gravitated towards the church, the local church, or more particularly, collective church, your church. And whether you're a Christian or not, I believe if I could place a veil of of ignorance over you and your circumstances and your social opinions and your partisan leanings and your sexual preferences, and then said, explain your dream church to me, what would you say? Again, Christian or not, you can still have opinions on the operations and the purposes and the morals of a community, like, right? Right? So, is your ideal collective community more of a spiritual social zone? Where the ideal would lean more programmatic and friendships are the goal? Is your ideal community more like a pharmacy? Where you would go up and down the aisles looking for what serves your needs, your ailments, your wants, your felt needs? Does the ideal community to you lean more like a worshipful, like Mumford and Sons experience? then it'd probably be safe to assume that we would come on Sunday mornings with an expectation of like music and production and light and be spiritually romanced. So, et cetera, et cetera. So then what is it? Well, let's remove the veil of ignorance and let's remove ourselves from the equation and seek to know what God's ideal, true, right, biblical community is. So uh, from a veil of ignorance to a veil of acceptance. And Acts 2, which should be open before you, has been the gold standard, the gold standard or the blueprint holding within itself what countless scholars and theologians would say are the raw materials to building a healthy, thriving Jesus community. And I love that collective is following this like natural trajectory of what happens when the spirit moves inside of a community like a mighty wind and what we're about to read What we're about to read is the natural formation of what occurs when the wind blows. So if there's a resurgence of God's spirits, these things must follow. So if there's no movement of the people horizontally because of what is happening vertically, then we have missed the purpose, collective church. God does not pour out a spirit to make us reservoirs. He pours out a spirit to make us canals between, between us and our coworkers and our employees and our neighbors and, of course, the church one another. So with all of that, we're going to actually read now. Let's read the blueprints that you've been soaking in for weeks. I don't know how many weeks you've been in this, but you've been in it a while. So Acts 2.42, we're going to start right there and get to my verses for today. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, 
and to prayer. Verse 43, and everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. And then our verses for today, now all the believers were together. That's a beautiful line. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. Church, this is our destination today, fighting for commonality. But how do we do that? The next verse tells us, verse 45, they sold their possessions, property, and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So great unity through meeting the needs of one another. Great unity through meeting the needs of one another. God's ideal community for collective church is for one another to meet each other's needs. And how do we do that? You see, what John Rawls discovered through the veil of ignorance is that the veil served as a severing. The veil served as a severing to individual preferences and pressures. And thus, people began to imagine healthy, thriving communities once they put their own needs to bed. Collective church, do you see what this uncovers? Are you with me? Do we see what this uncovers? It means that thriving Jesus communities, it means that the kingdom of God expressed in our midst like the book of Acts says, has a certain shade of blood running through its veins. And that shade is death. Death. Hear me on this. A living community is a community made up of individual deaths. One more time, a living community is made up of individual deaths. Or as author Paul Miller says, a dying love is the secret of all community formation. So then, as you've all been doing, let's take Acts chapter 2 and lay it like a layer of film over a biblical narrative to see it come alive practically. So if you can, turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth. If you have paper Bibles, it's before the Psalms, but after like Deuteronomy and Judges. If you don't want to turn there in the Bible, that's cool too. You can check the screenies. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the book of Ruth, I cannot encourage you enough, collective church, to gorge yourself within these pages. This is a deep well of even deeper stories, the book of Ruth. Read any commentary and you will see unanimous Affirmation and decision that Ruth is unrivaled in compactness, vividness, warmth, beauty, and dramatic effectiveness. Church, read this book, and when you're done, read it again, and when you're done, read it again. This book is fire. It's only one of the two books in all of Scripture named after a woman, but that doesn't make Ruth what's unique about it. What's unique about Ruth is her presence and practice within the Dark Ages. She existed amongst apostasy, savagery, brutality, oppression, dangerous sexual expression, political confusion, and absolute depravity, all of which should sound a bit like our day and age. But unlike its sibling book, the book of Judges, this book, pay attention, Ruth contains no miracles. Ruth has no villains. There are no single at all supernatural happenings in book. There's no spirit descending. There's no angelic visits. It is literally just a woman in perfect display of devotion. It's extremely powerful. So compared to the whores of those in book of Judges, uh, Ruth serves as a foil. 
And if you're familiar with Ruth's story, you've probably heard so many people say that Boaz is the type of Christ in this. Yes, and there's truth to that, but that pales in comparison to Ruth's own foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Church, read this book and then read it again. So, brothers and sisters, this woman is a juggernaut of the highest kind, and here's the best part as we get into it. She's not Jewish. She's not part of any Yahweh-loving tribe. She is from a town called Moab, which literally is known as like the toilet region. I want to make a Palms joke, but I'm not going to. (laughs) Joking. If you live in Palms, it's beautiful. (laughs) So you take this incredible character who is not part of God's nation from a horrible land. She's a young widow paired with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was the biggest Karen in all of the Old Testament. (laughs) They're impoverished, starving, broken. And if that couldn't get any worse, look at verse 1 of Ruth 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine. There was a famine in the land. So because of that, they are on their way back to the land of God. Verse 4. Her sons, that being Naomi, took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah. Be totally cool. I will say Oprah at some point today. Be cool. And the second was named Ruth. And they lived in Moab about 10 years. Verse 5. But Malone and Chilion also died. The woman was left without her two children and without her own husband. Verse 6. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Palms because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs. The Lord has paid attention to his people's needs by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, traveled along the road, leading them back to the land of Judah. Church, this is our setup for today. And... um, It's real, and it's heavy. But how in the world does Acts 2 lay or stand upon this? How do we apply any of this to a city like Los Angeles or selling property on the west side? Right here. This is how. Look at verse 11. This is it. Watch closely. This is how everything applies in this moment. Verse 11. But Naomi replied, we turn home. Return home, my daughters. Did you feel it? Did you see it? Like a gospel trembling tremor beneath the words? Here's what I'd like to do. Because meeting needs or commonality plays out differently from culture to culture and from church to church, I want to showcase not the how-tos today of Acts 2. I want to show and showcase the must-haves. The must-haves haves to reach all things in common, okay? So just two simple points. If you're taking notes, think of them as rear wheels on like a communal vehicle. Two implications today, a two pair of lungs or a pair of lungs that devotion is more than an idea and a breathing actualization of what the Spirit is doing in our own hearts and church. So let's hop in again, verse 11. But Naomi replied, we're to return Home, my daughters, why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who would become your husband? So in those days, the Jewish custom of marriage covenants meant if one husband died, then you marry the living brother-in-law. 
So right now, if you're thinking, I don't like my brother-in-law, you better pray that your husband stays alive, okay? (laughs) Verse 12, a second plea from Naomi. Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I'm too old to have another husband. And then listen to this incredible rationale. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, Naomi says, to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Naomi is making an airtight case to be left alone. Naomi's making an airtight case to be isolated, to be forgotten, to be out of community. Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is too much bitter, and this is heavy, listen to this, for you to share, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Just look at this raw monologue again. She honestly points them back home. Refusal. She paints a dark and bleak future for anybody who's in relationship with her. Refusal. Grief, bitterness, hopelessness, need, bubbling over out of Naomi's frozen heart. Leave me, she says. Refusal. And it's almost as if their love for Naomi, and I wonder if this applies to anybody here today. It's almost as if their love for Naomi intensifies her grief. Hopelessness does what it'll always do, and that is push people we care about away. As they probably, for Naomi, remind her of times past or her dead sons, unmet uh, grandchildren, their weddings. Hence, agony, agony, agony loves isolation. Naomi is indeed the embodiment of struggle. Naomi is the embodiment of need. But let's be honest, collective church, reading all this and you're tracking with me, Naomi is right. Naomi is right. Majority of us would be like, yeah, this is what's a pretty airtight case, right? There's no future on her path. These daughters are free. There is no covenant or commitments keeping them together, tethering them. So Orpah does the sensible thing and she does what? Look at verse 14. Again, they wept loudly. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and bounces. She leaves. So then the first benchmark or must-have, out of my two points, of a church aligning themselves to the architect's architect's blueprint of chapter 2 of Acts is this, if you're taking notes. When love becomes defiant, this is a must-have to meeting one another's needs. When love becomes defiant. Verse 14 again, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Man, those words. So allow me to ask Collective Church and make this real and practical for us right now. What determines whether you stay or go from this community? What determines whether you stay or go from this community? This, well, let's be fair. Besides the obvious stuff, heresy, moving to Alabama, if they start playing Maroon 5 before and after service, (laughs) those are your reasons to leave. But what determines whether you stay or go from this community? This biblical species of a devoted community is growing endangered. As the spirit of our age screams, run, 
the spirit of our age screams, run, in times of preferential discomfort or dislike. So then any form of being part of a spiritual family must stem from the acceptance, the acceptance that there are needs to be met. And that's true of any church. There are needs to be met. And let's even go further than that. And just even accepting the fact that collective church will have Naomi's within it. And if you're thinking, I'm not collective. I mean, everybody's been here, been a Ruth. Don't make me say it. You're the Naomi. You know what I mean? It's true. There will always be lacks and deficits and weaknesses and brokennesses that we, not merely elders or professionals or leaders, must devote ourselves to meeting. To meeting. Remember, they devoted themselves. So again, Orpah did the sensible thing. Ruth did the defiant, defiant thing. Okay, Casey, defiant to what or to who? To her flesh. Ruth was defiant to her flesh, to her instincts. Ruth was defiant to her wrong feelings. Ruth was defiant to what's natural. Ruth was defiant to her own culture and her surroundings. So where in Los Angeles invites you and I to act on our feelings, you are what you say you are, dump them like a sack of potatoes, quit, divorce again and divorce and divorce again, divorce again, divorce again, pick your gender. I don't like this preacher, so I'm gonna go to a different church. But scripture tells us to act on our commitments. Completely defined to everything Los Angeles is preaching at us on a moment-by-moment basis. So unless we're willing to say personal no's for communal yeses, then we've reduced Acts 2 to opinion and not obedience. A defiant love breaks the Angelino norms and clings to commitments knowing our emotions will follow. Do we know that about our emotions? Our feelings? This is true of marital love as well. This is why we do vows. You promise through thick and thin. So this is true of a community as well. So hear me on this. Please pay so close attention. Wrong emotions, our wrong emotions will consistently and constantly create new paths every time. Every time. Emotions will tell us to reimagine. Emotions will tell us to reinvent. Wrong feelings will tell us to reorient. But that is not how responsible disciples are to live. We do not reinvent Christians. Christians are called to remember. We remember our commitments, and we remember our community, and we remember the cross-shaped commitment of Jesus Christ. A clinging community like Ruth clung to Naomi is an outward indicator that we are clung to Christ himself. I'll say it differently so it adds adhesive to it. Our commitment to Christ bears a reflection or is proven in our commitment to one another's needs. Look at this from the New Testament, 1 John 3.16. This is how we've come to know love. This is how we come to know love, that he laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's the person next to you. Verse 17, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, in need, this should bear reflection of Acts 2, but withholds compassion from him, How does God's love reside in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or in speech and boom, shakalaka, but in action and in truth. So do we see what Scripture is trying to implant within us? A protest and a defiance to it feels good, do it mantra bullcrap is the road less traveled towards spiritual maturity or Christ-likeness. Devotion, everything Pastor Ryan has been talking about for weeks, develops the twin virtues of endurance and perseverance, creating a devoted community, which means a love with no exit strategies. Let's continue. Verse 15. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. Follow the person who already left. Are you here because another person is here and when they leave, you bounce? Follow the other person who's left. Verse 16. But Ruth replied, and this is paramount. One of the most famous poems in all of your Bible. If you have never read it before, oof. But Ruth replied, do not plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. So our second benchmark today for a community who meets one another's needs is our introductory idea, which is love is, or love as death. Love is defiant and love is death. So let's enter this with a question. What are you willing to give up for the other person in this room? Let's try it again. What are you not willing to give up for the other person in this room? Again, maybe this is too easy. Let's go a little bit more severe. What are you willing to give up for the other person in this room who you do not find fascinating? What are you willing to give up for the other person in this room who doesn't look, dress, sound like you? The person who's not interesting, not cool like us, or someone who can't advance our career. Think for a moment of the various needs you've come up against in this community. Everything from grief to overwhelming anxiety to financial help. What are our instinctual resolutions to those needs? Yo, bro, you want my therapist number? I have her on speed dial. Or like, uh, you want a Valium? Or you want a burrito? Like, what are, your, what are the needs that we think we can meet? Oh, this person's hurting. Oh, what do we do? What's our instincts? Our instincts. Yeah, for hopeless and needing uh, Naomi's, would any of those options have actually been an antidote to her issue? No, of course not. Naomi needs someone to die for her. And so this is where unnatural becomes supernatural. As those who have needs try to push other people away, saying, leave me, my life is over. Leave me, my faith is over. Leave me, my time is over. The community is supposed to respond by saying, no, I'm staying because my life is over for you. See, Ruth's devoted love responds by saying, I'm here despite what it might cost me. Now, what's fascinating about the, the relationship and the history between Ruth 
and the timing of the birth of church of the birth of the church in Acts 2 is actually that Rood was traditionally and communally read out loud every Pentecost. Ruth was one of the main books that Jewish customs and rituals read every single season. Why? The main reason is because Ruth courageously and voluntarily, courageously and voluntarily devoted herself despite the pain and loss that came from the decision of joining a community. So the Jewish people every year would be like, this woman entered our pain voluntarily. It's incredible. Now look at Ruth's famous poem again. Look at verse 16. The word plead. Circle it, highlight it, sharpie, do whatever. That original verb is remarkable. You want to know why? She is saying, or what shows us in the original context, it means aggression. It means affliction. Naomi's needs actively hurt Ruth. And yet with radical self-sacrifice, Ruth abandons every base of security, the same security that most here are trying to lock down in this life. I know what we're all fighting for. (laughs) Ruth's deathly love says, goodbye, native homeland. Goodbye, my people. Goodbye, potential husbands. Goodbye, children. Goodbye, legacy. Goodbye, dreams. Goodbye, home ownership. Goodbye, preferences. Ruth's love says goodbye tradition, habits, routines, rhythms, patterns. Now we better chill for a second before I misunderstood. Casey, are you telling me that in order to be a devoted community, I have to abandon my longing for a spouse? Casey, you're telling me that I have to sell my possessions and property. Dude, I live in Mar Vista with four of the dudes. They are not going to be pumped if I start selling their stuff. Like, right? Like, are you really saying this, Casey? Or maybe some of you are even thinking what so many have traditionally thought about Acts 2, which is Christian communism. Casey, are you really telling us to be a Facebook market celibate Christian communist? Yes. Yes. Let's pray. No, of course not. Ruth and the devoted community in Acts are descriptors of how believers cared for one another sacrificially with what they had. With what they had. There is no playbook for exact amounts or how-tos or what to give up. And I know all of us would probably prefer that. There's no playbook for what needs are to be met by what we have. Simply, you love Jesus, collective church. You love Jesus. You're filled with the Spirit. You are part of this church. That dramatically implicates our resources, period. Period. Or we've misunderstood the practices of what it means to be a church. Spiritual family, kingdom citizens, responsible stewards, responsible disciples will seek to love one another tangibly. They meet, as we see in both Ruth and Acts, they meet one another's material needs with material generosity not with positive vibes, good energy, no, but through self-sacrifice. So if you're saying, Casey, dude, that would kill me. That's the point. That's the point because part of you needs to die. 
part of us needs to die. Why? So resurrection can take place. We discover those immature, needing to die fleshly bits in community. So if any of us think we have zero issues to put to death, A, you're not in real community, or B, you're not married. Like it's one of the two. (laughs) So communal devotion by means of how we use our resources reveals the barometer of our own discipleship. One more time. Communal devotion by means of how we use our resources reveals the barometer of our own discipleship. Essentially, am I responsible or not? So yes, meeting one's needs can be spiritual. Like, I don't want to like downplay that. Of course, it can be like, let me babysit for free. Sure, I'll pick you up from the hospital. Sure, I'll burn all of your Maroon 5 music. Sure, I'll bring lasagna to neighborhood dinner. That's real. That's rad. But those are the lowest hanging fruit a spiritual family member can devote themselves to. So let's get practical, practical for just a smidge. Because everyone's thinking it. But the easiest way to understand what's happening in Acts is financially. It's financial. Now, don't get me wrong. All the other stuff I lifted off about picking up from the hospital and babysitting, like some of us would rather write checks, so those people also need to wake up to to what I'm saying. But knowing collective truth, or collective church, excuse me, Ruth lays out a sacrificial love and Acts lays out the hows that one of the greatest sacrifices to lay on the altar for this community is dollar, dollar bills. And beyond that, the most practical way this happens, as we see in Acts 5, if you ever get there, is that the finances were administered to the leadership for the distribution to those in need, also known as tithes or offerings. Um, Recently, my son, who I brought today, he's the giant monster in the corner. He's like 7'6 over there. Uh, Sadly, a couple weeks ago, uh, my son had an erupted appendix. And... um, they sort of put our entire life in sort of a, into a tailspin. And it erupted, and, and he had had multiple incisions and surgeries in the hospital for close to a week. Uh, I mean, he was a total baby about it. Oh, I need painkillers. Weak. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but the truth is, um, our tiny little New England church did not hold back the deathly or devoted love. They did not hold back. Our Venmo would not stop popping. The church leadership stepped in with benevolence, meals, rides, financial support. And it was beautiful to see the different functions of a body parts coming together, meeting our different and various needs. But you know what that did in us as the person who was the Naomi in that situation? You know what that did for us? It released in us a freedom. It released in us a removing of fears. It released in us an instilling of of an assurance. It strengthened our hope. It brought a bond. And in the midst of pain, it brought what was praiseworthy. A resounding, distributing needs to all as any had need in our very midst. So I don't know your financial commitment to Collective Church. And in some ways, that gives me permission to be even more honest. I'm not one of your pastors here. So let me just say this. Here's the thing about our financial commitment to a Jesus community. For your own health, for your own growth, for your own discipleship, break any religious conformities that you may be chained to right now. 
Hear me on this. I encourage you to handle your resources in light of redemption and not in light of religion. Okay? For example, religious tradition or law said, don't commit adultery. Jesus pops on the scene and it intensifies that and says, lusting of heart is now committing adultery. Okay? Or how about this? Those in the Exodus, those in the Exodus who saw God's generosity responded rightly with 10%. How much more should we respond who've seen the cross? Would it not be greater than the classic 10%, just as other commands and responses were also intensified in the doings and the dealings of Jesus? This is why you see the early church as a blueprint or the gold standard, because they were responding with such intensity far beyond the minimum. Because minimums create minimum impact. Minimums create minimum effectiveness. Minimums create minimum trust. Minimums create minimum response. Minimum gospel understanding. The Acts 2 church had a direct correlation that the kind of gospel they believed in was the kind of gospel that they supplied and applied to one another. But Casey... I'm really struggling financially. That's real. That's real. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says later into another church about deathly love from 2 Corinthians. During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. And their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. Anyone y'all killed to be part of that church. They get it. Because it's not about percentages or amounts. It's about what they had. I'll wrap up this money portion with this. I'm just going to ask some questions. And I would encourage you to either write them down and take them with you this week to discipleship groups. Let me just ask these things for your own self-reflection and assessment. Is God getting your financial first and best? Or are all other bills and wants handled first before others and the Lord? If that is the case, can you really make an argument that that's a sacrifice? Next question. What does your current giving say about what is first in your heart? What does your current giving say about what is first in your heart? Lastly, have you surrendered all of your resources? And some of you are like, my resources are like, not just material. Yeah, have you surrendered your contacts, your connections, your influence? Have you surrendered all of your resources to the Holy Spirit? If not, what and why are you holding back? That's, that's the pain point you're going to have to work out in discipleship groups. Why and the what's I'm holding back. So let's land the plane because maybe you're saying, Casey, I don't think I can. I'm actually going to be honest. Casey, I don't think I want to do any of this deathly degree defiant love thing. Hear me. Again, I understand. I understand. But then answer this. What then is the alternative? 
What then is the alternative? Because is it fair to say then that to deny or lessen a unified, devoted, spirit-filled community is to then choose a form of self-love? We're saying, I'm not going to do that because I love myself too much. Friends, listen so closely again. That cost of love also has death at its center, but it's a death with no resurrection. That cost of love will break your soul apart piece by piece. Please, if that's you, listen to these stark warning, a stark warning from German pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is rich and terrifying. The person who loves their, their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around him will create community. To abandon heart and practice of what we see in Ruth and in Acts doesn't just destroy your own souls. This isn't just about a singular individual. It is poison to the community. Any form of self-love is poison to this community. Now, I've spent the majority of this morning talking or trying to make a case about we should want the heart of Ruth. We should want the heart of Ruth. That is our communal goal. But we can only get there once we first understand that we are Naomi's. Every single one of us. We must own this part, a part that from the part of the inbreaking of God in Jesus Christ, we are bitter, hostile, pushing him away, isolated, hopeless, without family or community. And yet our Ruth Christ, our Jesus, who clings to us and meets all, all, all of our needs, forsook his rights for our righteousness, disregarded his divine privileges to, to reclaim us as a possession. Jesus, too, left his homeland to give us a kingdom. Jesus broke his reputation to remake ours. Jesus broke into our famine as the bread of life. And like an electrical bolt of uneven love, that's everything we've talked about, a bolt of uneven love, our Jesus took the foreshadowed promise of Ruth 1.17 and sealed it, not with your blood or my blood, but with his. Allow Ruth 1.17 to come alive in such insane, wondrous ways in this very moment, knowing who we are in Jesus. Ruth 1.17, where you die, Ruth said, no, where you die, I will die in your place, Jesus claims. And there will be buried, Jesus claims, and rise again, defeating all self-love, all isolation, and all bitterness. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And through his own punishment or substitutional severe discipline, his deathly and defiant love secured zero separation, zero unmet needs. There is no exit strategy with Jesus. There is no unbinding love with Jesus. There's no loosening with Jesus. There's no waning with Jesus between his love and our hearts. Oh, all of the things that we saw today are out of response to that kind of love. There is no separating. He has clung himself to you. Collective church, let me pray that this would stir up fresh zeal within this community, this spiritual family, let it stir up an even greater devotion towards one another, not for behavior's sake, not for religion's sake, not for law's sake, not for tradition's sake, but out of pure response of Jesus clinging and clung to us. Amen? Can I pray for you, please?
Jesus, we now pray that your spirit would do such and continue to do such an amazing work amongst this community that it would not end with emotional zeal on Sunday mornings. It may not end with some sort of spiritual enhancement or enlightenment. Lord, we ask right now that your spirit would be able to go from our hearts and our heads to our hands. In this very moment, may the other needs that need to be met within our community not be seen as obstacles, but opportunities. Jesus, we ask right now that people in our church who are Naomi's would come to be such a, a place of love for us. Lord, we pray that you would show us even greater opportunities of meeting needs. And Lord, we pray right now that this would come out of a rich, rich, deep well within our heart of what you've done for us. May we come alive to the fact that this morning you have met every single one of our needs. Lord, you have come again and again reminding us of your presence, of your process, of your plan for our lives and for this church. May we not be numb to that fact, but live into that. Jesus, we ask right now that your spirit would do such an incredible working. It would be undeniably your power and not our own. Lord, this is your church, not ours, not the pastor's. So have your way. May we release what we think this church should look like and cling to what you would have for us individually and communally.